Welcome to 15 Minutes on Congress Appropriations Edition. Uh, this is Dan Renberg with the Errant Fox Schiff Law Firm, Government Relations Practice Group. And today I've been joined by Andy Newton, someone I've worked with for over a decade. He's currently the Director of Federal Relations for his alma mater, Auburn University. I think this conversation will go well since no one in my immediate family attended the University of Alabama. Before he worked for Auburn, Andy served on the Senate Appropriations Committee staff for eight years, including four years as the staff director on the subcommittee of uh, covering financial services and general government, FSGG, as we like to say. He also served as a deputy assistant secretary at the Treasury Department for several years overseeing appropriations issues. The reason I asked Andy to take some time out from his busy schedule today is I really think it's important for people to understand the inner workings of the appropriations process in the House and in the Senate. Uh, we hear a lot about government shutdowns, continuing resolutions. What I'd like to do is to dig a little deeper as to how an appropriations bill is assembled, what are some of the factors involved, and how can stakeholders actually make a difference? So with that, Andy, welcome to our second edition of this podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks. When you were uh, working on the FSGG subcommittee, um, what agencies did you cover? Uh, the largest was the Department of Treasury and then Executive Office of the President, the federal courts, District of Columbia, and then about two dozen independent agencies that range from Federal Communications Commission, Securities and Exchange Commission, um, uh, run the gamut to Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. It seems to me, it, with all that you've just described, this is the kind of perennial case of being a, a mile wide and an inch deep, or maybe you got to go to three inches deep. That's what I felt sometimes. Some of the appropriations subcommittees focus exclusively on one department, Department of Homeland Security and the Homeland uh, Subcommittee, whereas our subcommittee covered a broader range of agencies. As a professional staff member on the FSGG subcommittee and as clerk, uh, staff director position, what was your role? How did you interact with other mem with members of Congress or staff? We interacted mostly with this subcommittee chair or ranking member that we worked on. So there's majority and minority, depending on party. So uh, when I first started the subcommittee, Senator Joe Hans was the ranking member. So we worked for him uh, on the committee. Uh, professional staff would hand handle different accounts underneath uh, the subcommittee's purview. So that included, for me at the time, small business, small business administration, parts of the Treasury Department, General Services Administration, a range of other agencies. So we would work with those departments to evaluate the needs. We'd work with other members, whether it be the chairman, ranking member that has their priorities, other members of the subcommittee, other members of the committee, and the members of the Senate at large. So different prioritization schedules, you can imagine, whether your immediate boss, Senator Johans, the ranking member of the full committee at the time, Senator Shelby, other members of the committee. So we try to balance each of their needs as we build an appropriations bill each year. Before we get to how an appropriations bill is assembled, something that just struck me while you were speaking is um, just because uh, a chair of the full committee and the chair of a subcommittee are in the same party doesn't mean that they always agree on issues. So I'm curious, Andy, how did you handle it when the chair of the subcommittee wanted to, for instance, uh, do a 20% increase in a program or a 20% decrease, but the chair uh, of the full committee, um, someone like Chairman Shelby, uh, had a completely uh, diametrically opposed uh, viewpoint. How did you handle that? Because I, I always hate it when mom and dad fight. Yeah, it, it creates some interesting dynamics. I, I think anyone that gets to the point of Senator Shelby, who had been on the Appropriations Committee since the mid-90s, I uh, could see that there's a time to lead the committee and there's a time to listen to members. And I think part of what we do is conflict resolution sometimes of determining 
how much does this cut or increase mean to this member and how much does it mean to the other member? And sometimes we could go to Shelby staff and say, okay, this is what Senator Kennedy, for example, wants to do, or this is what Senator Lankford wants to do, depending on who the subcommittee ranker or chair is at the time. Um, and then at the end of the day, if we couldn't get to a good place, we'd put the two members in the room. Um, typically in those scenarios, the full committee chairman wins out, but I think any good full committee chair will recognize that there's only so many times we can tell different members exactly what they need to be doing in their bill. Because at the end of the day, when you introduce the financial services and general government bill for FY21, it is the subcommittee's chair's name that's on it when it's introduced to Congress. So it's a tight wire act sometimes. That's a great point. Well, um, I, I appreciate your clarifying uh, because you you definitely had two masters, so to speak. And so um, you would need to uh, iron out all those differences because the appropriations Many markups in the Senate, and I used to work for a Senate appropriator, um, are often uh, fairly uneventful, um, especially for some of the less contentious bills. So you really do uh, put in a yeoman's amount of effort ahead of time to work out those differences to make sure that members are aligned, especially members on the same part of the same party. So thanks for uh, for helping uh, walk us through that. I'd like to get at how an appropriations bill is assembled. And for uh, people who are listening, uh, I imagine if they found this podcast, they know that there are 12 annual appropriations bills that fund government programs, what are called the discretionary budget programs, as opposed to entitlement programs, Medicare, Social Security, they don't require an annual appropriations bill, that money goes out the door from the treasury. But in these 12 bills, um, each probably has its own rhythm, you worked on FSGG. Um, and so I'm curious, how do you assemble the bill? The inputs I was thinking about as I was looking forward to talking to you today are you have the annual budget request from the president. You have last year's appropriations bill for that current fiscal year. And then you have member input and, of course, stakeholder input. So love it if you could walk us through a little bit about what goes into creating that draft bill with the subcommittee chair's name on it that you were just describing. Sure. There, there's really two different parts of that. There's the money side of where all the funding will go and then any instructions, report language and bill language side that any would go. Uh, it starts with the president's budget being introduced and that has their recommendations for each of the bill. And depending on if it's a Republican or Democratic administration, they will add up to different numbers. We saw Trump look to reduce non-defense discretionary by 10 percent. Um, you saw Biden, Obama, maybe five, 10 percent increase in each bill. So we're trying to get a grasp on what the department wants, because if you know the Treasury Secretary is going to call Senator Johans, Senator Langford, Senator Kennedy, the different members involved, you want to make sure that we're, there's a story to tell for why we're doing something that he or she wants to see or why we aren't. So it's keeping department heads happy which is difficult is keeping members happy because different members have different priorities and what they want to see funded or not funded as the case may be. Um, and then different outside groups as well. So it comes down to how we address all the requests that came in. And as you can imagine, there's always, we're always oversubscribed for how much funding people wanted to spend versus the amount of funds that we had available to spend. So that came down back to our prioritization schedule of you had share and ranking member, that you try to keep happy and in the Senate bills were typically bipartisan. So we try to keep both members happy. You have chair and ranking member of the full committee, you have department heads. So it's trying as different outside groups express support for things. It was what members were they bringing along with them because uh, trade associations may have some ideas. 
companies may have some ideas, nonprofits, all those ideas could go into the pot. But the more members that they brought with them, the more we could say, okay, that's there's a $10 million pot that's left over that we're trying to determine where it's going to go. It's what where's the support for this or against this? What are we doing here? They can make 10 members happy versus one member happy. Who is the one member? Who is who are the 10 members? So it's uh, trying to resolve those issues. So, Andy, you described uh, member input. My recollection is that there's several different ways for members to weigh in with the appropriators. Um, some choose to do a, a single formal letter. Uh, others like to do a joint letter with other members. Um, there's an online portal. Then, of course, there's buttonholing a senator, uh, the chair of the subcommittee or the ranking member on the floor during a vote and saying, here's what I need. Uh, I'm curious. Um, we as uh, lobbyists often encourage uh, members to do joint letters to the appropriators. But I've always wondered if the member doesn't then follow up by submitting it through the online portal as a priority for program X funding or program Y, I'm wondering that it isn't as efficacious. So can you walk us through in your experience, joint member letters versus the members submitting something through the portal as a request? Is there a difference? Uh, is it belt and suspenders? I, sometimes there is and sometimes there is, isn't, which isn't an easy answer to give. But I, I will say it, it depends on the member and what they choose to prioritize. So I would view it not necessarily through the lens of is this a multi-letter or is this individually submitted by the member, but where do they prioritize that? And we'll ask each member to rank their different requests. So if one member is signing on to 100 different, increase this, increase that, increase the other, in our view, at least when I was there, it it I don't use the word diminished, but they were spreading their request far and wide. Whereas if there was a member and he decided not, to, he or she decided not to sign on any specific joint letter, but said, I have one priority this year and this is what it is, that would carry more weight. But it, as you look at the different members of the committee or the subcommittee, who the chair and ranking is, if it's a member of the subcommittee and he said, I have one priority, that means significantly more than if it's a member that was on a different committee or not going to vote for a bill at the end of the day. Well, stakeholders spend an inordinate amount of time every spring trying to get these joint letters up and running. Uh, do you recommend that they continue doing that? Is there still a, a value to having these joint member letters? I do. I mean, you have to. There has to be some demonstration of support where this is coming from, because you could have the best of ideas, but if there's no member support behind it, if it's not something that the department asked for, it's something that's difficult for a committee to fund, because it, it goes back to there's far more requests for funding than funding to give out. And so if how could they allocate the funds if they're not uh, if there's not a demonstration of support for those initiatives? Fantastic. Well, that, that's very useful uh, guidance. I'm, I'm curious, uh, there are bill language provisions, there are funding levels, and then there's report language. I'd love to spend a couple minutes here on the committee reports. Um, uh, stakeholders spend a lot of time uh, bringing committee report language in draft form up to the Hill to someone like you when you were on the subcommittee. And I'm curious, do you see value in uh, committee report language? Do you find that agencies were historically compliant uh, with what uh, directions were the exhortations in report language. Is this a worthwhile exercise? Uh, as you know, report language is uh, is not legally binding. So there's no uh, legal ramifications of not following report language, but there certainly is, there can be political ramifications doing so. So yes, it does provide value. It, it depends on the strength of the language. Um, some can be in bill language. That is more 
rare, it's difficult to secure, but uh, it's, it's also a decision the committee makes of do we want legal ramifications of an agency following this or not following this. So I, there is value. I think as a as a committee staffer, we also determine how likely is an agency to follow report language because one consideration I personally had was we don't want to include report language that will then get completely ignored. And that can come down to are you directing an agency to do something or encouraging an agency to do something? Um, because if we direct or say the department shall do X, Y, Z, if they don't do that, then it in my view, can make us look bad as we were telling them what to do. They were not following it to demonstrate our impotence. Did it demonstrate an agency's willingness to completely buck the trend? So we were careful on when we spoke and where we spoke, but certainly encouraging, urging, it can demonstrate um, sentiment around a program and providing some direction isn't always the case for authorizers. They will authorize a program, they will set standards, um, established parameters, um, but there is a chance for us to weigh in and provide some guidance. And uh, depending on the level of language used of strongly concerned, worried, um, pick your poison on the different language that's used, but it would present an opportunity to demonstrate to stakeholders that this is something that we were following, that tell a department of this is something that we're tracking and we want X, Y, and Z done. It's sometimes to their peril, and they may know that we have the support to override a decision in the future years, that it's something we're watching between committee markup and omnibus uh, consideration. So it's um, it's some, something that the departments do look at and evaluate, but um, you know you can't change law through report language. Uh, sometimes there are there's a limit to how much power those uh, you can exert through report language. But on the whole, though, it's still a useful exercise. It is. It appears. Uh, I, I think we spend yeah. we spent more time on report language some years than dollar allocation because you know as your dollars can only go so far, and you can always explain away to a department or an agency or a member that hey, this is a tough year. This is what the allocation is. This is where we spent it. We had to make difficult decisions. Whereas with report language, it's not choosing this or that it's is this going to be in there or is it not going to be in there and what we'll have to work with some authorizers if you know we're weighing in on a program in their jurisdiction if one member asks for it but the chairman of that committee is on a different page how are we going to work through that and that goes back to some of the prioritization of you know if chairman is saying something but every other member of the committee says something else well if it's our committee we uh, certainly place a high value on that well, Andy, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I think you've really helped illuminate the appropriations process, which was the goal of the podcast. Uh, this has been 15 Minutes on Congress, Appropriations Edition. This is Dan Renberg thanking Andy Newton, Director of Federal Relations at Auburn University and a former public servant. Thanks so much for listening today.